out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Or not. Who knows? Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. This week's special guest is going to be Jeanette Leach, the author of the book titled Fearless, The Making of Post Rock, a book that came out last year on Jawbone Publishing. So I've got that interview um, as well as um, a couple of exciting songs. So to get the ball rolling, as we say, I think we should play a... um, a track by a band that gets mentioned within the interview. Um, this is Talk Talk and the track is called It's My Life. And then the interview. I know, the suspense, it's growing. Take it away.
There you go. The beautifully, beautifully crafted work of Talk Talk in the track titled It's My Life. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, a special because this week it is going to be an author, Jeanette Leach, who put a book out a couple of, well, 18 months ago titled Fearless, The Making of Post Rock. This came out on Jawbone Publishing and this is the interview. I've been talking, as you do, chatting about life, love, poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff and talking also about the indie pop scene of uh, the mid-80s, which was mostly the C86 and then this kind of period that she's talking about. And this was her response. Jeanette, take it away. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are certain parallels with it in terms of uh, both of the scenes. If we're talking about the British scenes at the moment I mean there was a sort of fierce independence to both of them which I think is a really strong parallel but and a lot of the bands started just as that kind of C86 scene was either at its at its height or dying away and there were sort of parallels with like for instance My Bloody Valentine I mean they, they sort of sort of overarch those kind of scenes. But um, there was a lot of influence taken from them and the whole dream pop aesthetic. I don't know if you know a band called A.R. Kane, who I write about in um, in Fearless, but they were, they were quite important as well for taking on a sort of dreamy indie aesthetic as well that was a bit sharper when post-rock um, came to its to its fruition in the British scene but you know there are definite there are definite parallels to it and I think the sort of indie and DIY nature of it is really really important like there's some there's some really nice stories in my book of people just sort of doing what C86 bands did in terms of just like stuffing envelopes and sort of folding <laughs> record sleeves and all that so um so, so there's there's certainly and they all played the same the same venues you yes. know I know <laughs> well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, having done this, uh, the C86 show for sort of over a year now and sort of doing a, a band virtually every week, the one thing I did notice was, was quite a clear narrative of a, a five-year arc where most bands get together. And during that period, it was a, sometimes just because there was nothing else to do and slight boredom. But also, yes, just because there was like very little opportunities and very little money. And making a single and then doing the album, doing the John Peel show, and doing the tour and then the tricky second album and most bands mm. didn't really last over five years so with with this particular scene did you find a similar sort of story narrative yeah and in fact that was one of the things that I was consciously looking for so one of the one of the drivers for me writing this book was that when I'd read about post-rock before and some of the writing was was excellent but often it would be quite dry and I didn't necessarily get a sense of the emotion behind the music and I didn't necessarily get a sense of the stories of the people who made the music. So one of the things that was really important to me was to make sure I got those, I pulled out those human stories. And to a certain extent, you're absolutely right. There is like a definite arc of bands who, who don't quite make the big time you know you know someone like mogwai is yes. different because they really did cross over but if we're looking at the sort of mid-90s british bands yeah you're absolutely right a lot of them formed in the late 80s and um there's a chapter in my book called 1994 the year post-rock broke because that's pretty much the year all that first generation of british post-rock bands broke up through various degrees of rancor and recrimination <laughs> um but yeah d definitely and and 
what I think is difficult for bands when they get to a certain um, level of success is what do they do? They, especially if they're doing a kind of music that's A, quite niche, and B, requires quite a lot of concentration because there often isn't the outlets for for them. Um, a lot of bands that I talked to talked about having to do sort of quite inappropriate support slots when they were on the live circuit. So you get like people um, supporting bands that they didn't really have a lot in common with, like sort of Kingmaker right. and um, Cuds and all those kind of, you know, what I would consider fairly lumpen indie mm. bands. Um, and they were just kind of ignored. So they, they were sometimes too big for the really small um, venues, but they couldn't command the audience for the kind of music that they were making at uh, sort of bigger venues which might have better sound and things like that so it was it was I think a lot of bands at that stage get into a sort of squeezed middle and there's sometimes quite not that many routes out of it a good example in my book of a route out of it although they did break up a little bit later was Seafeel who um, they they experienced all that kind of stuff and they had a lot of um, electronic equipment, which a lot of venues, as a lot of post-wop bands did, a lot of venues couldn't really handle that. Right. There's, there's some great sort of anecdotes about bands um, trying to, they've got like projections, they've got samplers, they've got sequences and things like that. And they go into like the Dublin Castle or somewhere and they said, oh yeah, plug it in there. And it's like one plug with like a four, <laughs> four-way <laughs> plug coming off it and blowing the, uh, uh, blowing the electrics. And um, I think Seafield were, because they were on the Two Pure yes. which is a great label, um, but they left for Warp Records, which had a slightly bigger budget, and but they also had a different audience and they had a different understanding of electronics. And I think the problem for a lot of the British post-rock bands was that a lot of the indie labels at that time didn't necessarily have an understanding of electronic music or you know know how to sort of support it properly a good example of that is disco inferno who um they they really wanted to get into using more sequences and samplers and they sort of experienced quite a lot of um resistance from their label about about that kind of thing so yeah it was it was Oh, you just um, oh, you just you just, all, you just almost cracked up there. Actually, I don't know why. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Um, oh, sorry. What I'm going to do? Will you be um? Will you be editing this? Yeah, all? I'll edit a little bit. Sorry. Yes. Uh, I'm just gonna. The, the reason is I'm just gonna shut the door because um, a we have a very loud clock that sort of goes off. It's a it's a beautiful sort of old um Victorian clock, but it it goes off and will. You know, <laughs> it goes off every quarter of an hour, so it was due to go off. And also, my my husband's very nicely cooking brunch, so um, oh, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, where was I? Yeah, uh, so I think one of the problems was there was nowhere to put these bands. They were between genres, and until post rock was actually coined as a term they were just between so many different things. Were they electronic? No, not completely. They still used guitars. Were they indie? Well, they were independent, but they weren't that kind of, either that popular indie, like I was talking about, like sort of um, chart indie, like the Wonder yeah. Stuff say, 
or that very DIY indie, which you're talking about, like the Tallulah Gosh end of it, they weren't that either. So I think it was quite difficult for these bands to fit in and they all felt like misfits. And um, so it was a, it was a difficult time for them. So while they did have that arc, they all did fall out. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of bands after a certain um a certain length of time th- there was an extra layer of difficulty for them which came between them sort of not fitting in fitting clearly into a genre well it was quite interesting because because that so there was that so the c86 world and they did putter out by about 87 88 mm-hmm. you know the smiths had just broken up and mm-hmm. and bands came along which were a bit unfortunate because in a way people were quite bored like the sundays suddenly appeared and it's like mm-hmm. god that's perfect but in a way everyone's bored and there was the mad chester scene and then you had from seattle obviously the grunge scene started mm-hmm. to appear and and it kind of almost swept everything away and then after that a few years later you had this the the wonderful Britpop period as well. So actually, trying to fit those niches in and keep things fresh is is kind of it's all about timing. But bands like My Bloody Valentine did do very well during that period. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned Britpop because um, the bands that I interviewed really saw Britpop as a as a time where it it didn't help their cause. Let's just say because it was anti a lot of the stuff that they were trying to do um, because it was very, for one thing, it was quite retro. You know, it looked to a period of the 60s yes. and, the, and the Beatles and things like that. And one of the things that most of um, my band, my bands, um, the bands that I write about really were very aghast at was retro culture and they they didn't want anything to do with that at all. And that's one of the reasons why they used electronics quite quite as much as they did as well. Um, and also, I think there was a little, sort of, there was a personal element in, in it too, in that there was so much uh, music press attention on Britpop, so much. And I think they felt it starved them of the of the oxygen that the little bit of oxygen that they that they actually did have. So um, it 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 diverted a lot of attention towards this one this one thing. And that also you know that also came to fruition in about 1994 when a lot of these bands were on tilt anyway. So I don't think I don't think it really helped their cause if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I mean, it was quite interesting because during that time you had a lot of interesting bands like Jesus Lizard, but also you had one of the main people, which was Steve Albini from Big Black, mm-hmm. who went into Shellick. So pe- producers and musicians like him played a huge part in that particular scene as well, didn't they? Because they were also quite, anti- they were really anti-establishment, weren't they? Absolutely. I mean, Steve, Steve Albini was, uh, obviously he prefer- he produced the first Slint album and um, a subsequent session that they that they did um but he didn't he actually didn't produce Spiderland which is the Slint album most known as their I mean I think it's a fabulous album and from 1991 and it's known as one of the the water watermarks of early post-rock um but funnily enough Slint consciously didn't want Steve Albini to produce that album because um they saw him as someone who produced quite raw things and they wanted something that gave them a different sound to that. 
And there's a great quote from Steve Albini in my book, because I write about the influence of Talk Talk, who um, were really important, their, their final two albums, Laughing Stock and um, Spirit of Eden. And I write this chapter about this whole Talk Talk way of working, which is, you know, hush, you can create all this, you know, hours and hours worth of music and you might pull out you know, 10 minutes from it or something. And Steve Albini, um, Steve Albini says, you know, that's not, that's not the way snuff out the candles and make the record. You know, he was very much in terms of doing it in that way. And I think that, um, got more, um, influence over in America. Obviously Steve Albini is American. The other thing that shellac were really good for and important for was, you know, that whole aesthetic of American post-rock covers, you know, very tactile. Um, and I think it's their shellac's at action park which has that sort of i think it's a sort of um screen printed way of processing something where where you actually feel the cover and a lot of a lot of american post-rock bands took up that bands like rachel's and um june of 44 and actually the the guy from june of 44 jeff Mueller, who i interviewed he was one of the people who was actually involved in that business of creating those sleeves and later you get people like godspeed who I absolutely love and they took it to kind of ludicrous extremes by including all these masses of inserts and in their first album they've got like a squashed penny and they would go out to the railway tracks and squash pennies to put to put in the album so there was a lot of attention to detail of the sleeves and I think um shellac uh did that as 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 well um yes and also I mean where I mean there's a whole I mean it's quite a complicated business because there's a whole wave of bands that sort of also came along, which was sort of like the Galaxy 500 and the, and the Muddy Stars and that kind of shoegazing phase as well, which wasn't so electronic, but they did sort of again sort of cause another subsection of sort of, um, as a, I suppose, another genre really, didn't they? Absolutely. Uh, Galaxy 500 and um, the the bands who sort of I write about in the same chapter, Codeine, who are really part of that slowcore scene, which is related to what you, to what you're talking about. Um, they, you know, really slowing everything down. You know, you even listen to the lyrics in those kind of, uh, in those kind of Galaxy 500 or Codeine works, and they can eke out words for like seemingly a whole line. You know, it's not very, <laughs> very clipped at all. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, G Galaxy 500 are uh, a great band, another band who, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stories of rancor and distress in, in my book as well. <laughs> Galaxy 500 were um, must rank up there as one of the sort of most uh, destabilizing splits of all time, really. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, definitely, there's there's that element of it which is very very dreamy, very slow, but also related, I think, to Joy Division. Right. Yes. And you know that kind of sort of bleakness a lot of those bands have. So it's not that kind of what I would call you know lush shoegazing which you you know you got with some some other bands um you know you mentioned the Sundays I think they're a good example of that sort of very full and beautiful sound I mean I'm not saying they don't have their bleak moments no. but those bands like Galaxy 500 they did a Joy Division cover Codeine did a Joy Division cover they were a really important part of bringing in that sort of you know that sense of desolation really yes. 
I think. Because the other band that I, I you know, still are quite obsessed with because I find fascinating that sort of came out around that same time was all the way from Slovenia, which is Leibach, you know, and people like the mm. Young Gods as well, which kind of brought a quite a le- more electronic but kind of a theatrical sense to their music as well, yeah. didn't they? <laughs> young Gods, I mean, I, I, I actually hadn't really um, listened to much young, young Gods before I started writing this book, but I knew they, they were an important band to, um, especially to Disco Inferno. And um, Disco Inferno actually said it was the Young Gods and Public Enemy who were the were the bands that made them sound like they did and really influenced their um, their use of samplers. Young Gods, I think they call their their music new sonic architecture, which is a great phrase. And <laughs> they're very they're very they can be very abrasive, I think. Um, and that abrasion, like with like with Joy Division with the Desolation, that abrasion is actually really really important to post rock. And another band who have that theatricality element that you're talking about too, although not sampling, are Swans. I oh, think. Oh God, yes, they are stunning. Um, just like that big, you know, they they they're not they're not shy bands. No. Are they? <laughs> they're very um they're very in your face and i don't think often a postdoc is often characterized i think kind of wrongly as a sort of shy reticent kind of kind of music and it's not at all a lot of these bands were influenced by these very big theatrical displays they just sort of um emphasized it differently yes. i think they might do it through films for example which was which was a very very common way you look at like a band like godspeed they still have that sort of very in-your-face aspect to them, but they tend to do it through films and, you know, the sonics rather than the theatrics of an individual on stage. But I suppose, like the bands, a lot of the labels also had their moment of glory because there was kind of Blast First, there was SST, mm-hmm. and there was also Two, two Pure Records as well. And, they, and obviously, yes, Warp as well, which I hadn't sort of put those in the same category but I can see now when you mention that it does all sort of work because that was also was that Cabaret Voltaire as well were in Warp Records oh were they on Warp um I'm I'm not sure yeah um I think Richard Kirk or Richard whatever I think he eventually went into Warp Records at some I'm sure he did I mean Warp's purview became took in quite a lot of those I was going to say older people but you know what I mean the first generation maybe people who were on meat records or something and then later did a solo thing or something on warp I think there was there was sort of some crossover because with there. because with two pure records there was there was a really good band called the faith healers which I quite like because yeah. because London North London the Camden scene had a band that I remember seeing supporting my bloody Valentine at the art center which was silverfish and there was also <laughs> another band called terminal cheesecake so they they were sort of bands who I suppose they were much more onto the feedback and the sort of like, um, I suppose it's almost like thrash come grunge really as well. Mm-hmm. There was a, <laughs> there was a name for those um, Camden bands. It was like it was called the Camden Lurch, which is one of the worst genre names that a journalist has ever thought up. I think, <laughs> and it, it really um, it, it really had it was just for these these sort of two pure bands those early two pure bands and um it was about the sort of north london people who went to see it who would who didn't know how to dance so they would kind of lurch and that's where the, that's yes. where the name came from it was you know people moan about like being um, pigeonholders post rock or being pigeonholders shoegazing or whatever but if you're pigeonholders camden lurch i mean that's sure <laughs> 
is the worst name that you can think of. Oh, yes, um, that didn't work at all, would it? And I, mean, <laughs> no. but, I mean, this book is incredibly, I mean, I think it's amazing because there's so much depth and, and sort of study. So it must have taken absolutely ages to do. It did, actually. I mean, it's it's... It probably took about two and a half years from sort of conception to handing over the manuscript. And um, it was it was funny because I wrote a previous book called Seasons They Change, which was about acid and psychedelic folk music. And that took just shy of two years. And it covers an enormous time span. I start with Shirley Collins in the late 50s and I went right up to um, into the 21st century. And I thought, oh, the next the next book I do, um, which did actually take a few years for me to sort of get a, get an idea that I felt comfortable with. The next book I do, I thought I will do a much more defined time period. And this pretty much is it's from the you know mid 80s to 2001, 2002. And I thought, oh, I'll do something a bit more compact. It will take me less time. It will have more definition. No, of course, what happens is, I, I don't know whether it's a fault in me. You just end up going, going into, into more depth. But um, I, it was a real voyage of discovery for me because what's wonderful is when you start talking to the bands because you, you, you come up with an idea for something and you have all these theories about it and then you actually start talking to people and some of your theories probably a minority actually are proven correct but most of them send you off into totally different directions and that's an absolutely wonderful experience so you you do make more work for yourself with all that sort of stuff but it's the only way to get to the stories and the opinions of the people who actually made the music and in that way that's how you construct a history. I mean, the young gods are a good example of that and swans as well. So actually talking to the people who are involved meant that I would include them in a different way and give them more prominence than I originally thought I would in the book. But yeah, and for the last, um, for the last about eight or nine months, I pretty much did nothing other than write this book. I mean, did you did you have to do any re? I mean, because because having sort of met a few people who've done books and stuff like that, sort of probably more in the sort of academic field, sort of realizing you know by the time you got to the end, you're going to have to start and rewrite it a bit again. Did you have to do much of that kind of? No, um, primarily because I have a very high inner critic, and I one of the reasons why it takes so long for me is because I don't tend to get that many words on the page I'm not one of these people who likes to fill up a blank sheet of paper and then sort of um, edit it all later I like to get something good down first of all so I had a very rigid way of writing a chapter which would end up with it being quite an edited piece as I was as I was going along so um yeah of course after I'd finished the whole thing and I remember exactly where I was because I lived in London at that point and I was in my my local pub and it was I thought I would finish it early in the morning and I hadn't it was still nine o'clock so I was like oh I've got to get this done so I was just like maybe a maybe a sort of glass of wine will will help me and I did it and um then after that I let it sit for a couple of weeks then went back to it and sent then sent it off to my to my editor and of course they come back with with like a few things and there's some sort of there's always a few legal questions that you yes. have to answer as well like that you're not libeling people and things like that um but yeah it's it it does it does take a long time but 
I was lucky. I had a very supportive publisher, um, Jawbone Press, who also published my first book. I worked with the same editor who is also knowledgeable about the music that I'm writing about. So I couldn't have asked for more support. It wasn't like a, we must get this out for the Christmas market or or whatever. They were interested in it, getting it right, which I was too. So it was worth it. If I mean, even even if you do spend an extra two or three months than you than you thought that you were going to, it's it's much better. That that time isn't wasted, really. No. Yes, absolutely. Well, I just have to say, I'm just so impressed because you know, being a bit nerdy and and being obsessed with sort of interviewing bands, you sort of you do sort of start to sort of learn so much more than yeah. What, what, you know, I never knew, thought I was an expert, but then suddenly you're thinking, my God, I've just learned so much about every every band. It's just like got a narrative and a story and. Uh, a middle you know a beginning middle and a messy end often (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of in a way it's kind of waiting for a book itself is that sort of the breakup of bands because that that last bit when it goes wrong each one is different and everyone is a little bit unpleasant but um that's often what I find with the C86 bands is that Mm. once they finish they sort of probably took two decades you know 20 plus years before they picked up their instrument again and started to sort of Mm. play music but I think any thought of you know their pre life in the indie band probably made them feel slightly ill actually yeah which, which is kind of yes I mean there are a few bands who you know what I find actually really interesting how few artists and bands have con- have kept with music all through their life there was not sort of like I'll do this for five years and then stop and do something else and then come back there's you know and that's that's for me been quite fascinating that some people said no this was it whatever happened even if I was going to have to just busk on the street but I think it kind of broke most people because there's the sort of legality and the admin and the publishing and yeah. the record labels. And like you said, with with um, management, there was a band called the Railway Children from Manchester who, you know, mm. were very, and their manager wanted them to support Take That. And they thought, we don't want to take, we don't want to support Take That. You know, we're not that sort of band, you know. This was Take That in the early years. But you can see the struggle that a lot of people have. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of um, rogue elements in the music industry and people just get, like, tired of... Um, fighting against them I think um I don't know if you sort of follow the case of Spaceman 3 and their sort of really poor management deal that they that they signed and that's still ongoing you know the 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 team put out some record store day releases without the band's permission and you know it's just it's 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 very unpleasant and um a lot of these bands are very young as well I mean C86 ones maybe even even more so the the teenagers early 20s they don't necessarily have a lot of experience of business they don't even actually have a lot of experience of work one of the things that that I found which was um a sort of enabler of bands to be able to do this was a, a relatively benign dole regime where people it wasn't like today where people are forced into you know looking for work for 34 hours unless you get or you get sanctioned it was actually well we could sign on and then our time was our own and I think there were a lot of other cultural factors that that helped like rents being cheaper or in some cases bands squatted 
and when you're young you can kind of do that thing but I think you know you're talking about sort of not going back to that I think for some people that lifestyle is just like not what they want anymore and I think that can be kind of that's pretty understandable really so you know well, I was sort of speaking to um it was a Greg from Big Flame and and I mm-hmm. think again they were on the dole and just living in a very cheap if not sort of almost free sort of accommodation in Manchester and and there was nothing else to do, so they started playing yeah. music. And the reason they sounded like they did was that they weren't, you know, they they couldn't play their instruments, so they had to just make a noise. So they they couldn't do a covers band. They couldn't start playing sort of, yeah. you know, Stairway to Heaven because it's like they weren't capable of playing anything sort of like that. They just had to make some sort of random noise and became sort of a cult band for a few years. Mm. And and yeah, like you said, being on the dole, I think there was some scheme where you could pretend to be. Um, self-employed for a year there was some benefit thing oh do you know someone else mentioned that to me one of my interviewees I can't remember who maybe it was like um it might have been the guy from the wolfhounds because I interviewed Dave from the wolfhounds right yeah and he might have been on that I don't know there was a lot of those bands went on this kind of enterprise it was called the enterprise allowance it was what Margaret Thatcher and the conservatives conservatives put together to sort of mm. try to get the numbers you know massage the figures and they said look you you can be a year still claiming the benefit and and get a housing benefit but we'll take your you know name or the date it will take the number of being unemployed mm. and you can be on this scheme for a year and pretend to be a self you know a self-employed musician mm-hmm. or a publisher or writer and, and a lot of people did it was that, mm. that in a bizarre way that was an absolutely brilliant scheme so you know for a year people were just able to sort of get on with their thing and some people you know didn't do much and some people did and and but it did create a lot and I think even Jarvis Cocker mentions yeah. that that sort of particular scheme that the government did and I think that does help and and you know the one thing this country has which is quite extraordinary is this kind of creative music scene and probably a lot of other creative scenes as well but musically people seem to have quite an obsession with making quite interesting noises and and sounds so yes and like you said you know it's kind of where the rest of the world almost looks to to see what's coming out of Britain Mm. because it does it is kind of boggling just you know (laughs) for me that 80s period was kind of fascinating but then at the same time there was an interesting reggae scene the early years of hip-hop as well as the mainstream charts which were a bit tricky but you know there, there was you know and then you had all this random indie music and you know with Cherry Red Records now putting out these kind of compilations and picking mm. together all these weird little flexi discs which used to be impossible to get hold of you kind of think god there was just a lot of music you know yeah. and and um and I'm still sort of kind of not discovering too much more but there is still bits that you think oh they never came across this band because it actually it was it was impossible to hear because you didn't have Spotify or YouTube yeah. so it is quite a, it is quite fascinating. So you know, I'm just impressed that you put this book together, and it's so brilliant. And and you know, it's it's a great document because the other thing is that with all these people, as we all get older, you know, they're not going to be around forever, are they? So it's quite nice to capture them while they're here. Exactly, and I I get a bit annoyed at the um, some uh, Cherry Red are a very no, notable and. Um, valiant exception to what I'm about to say but sometimes I do get very very irritated that the the music that's archived or thought about or held in high regard is very much that sort of 60s 70s arc and like the 80s sort of starting to get into that a bit but like the 90s now it's like over 20 years ago and we should start to look at that in a sort of um more uh historical perspective as well and um 
there's a lot of really, really great stuff that hasn't been written about from from that era. And um, I think it's long overdue some kind of historical perspective because it's the 60s stuff is just written about ad nausea. <laughs> you know, it's how, how, how deep do you need to go? I mean, the, the Beatles are the obvious example with all these kind of day by, even like the Velvet Underground have got a day by day by the Velvet Underground. It's like, why do you... Oh. I mean, maybe if you're obsessed with the bands, but I would much rather read a sort of overall history of an interesting scene that offers some new perspectives and some broader perspectives rather than going into, you know, what Lou Reed had for had for breakfast. Or well, it, yes. Well, it's interesting because in the early days I used to sort of buy, you know, the, the monthly or I suppose the weekly music papers but mm. then they sort of went by the by and then the monthlies but then you think oh no the cover has got you know Jimi Hendrix Jim Morrison mm. Joe Strummer the Beatles you know and then the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan and and you know and then it just gets repeated and you think oh god you know you can't have another eight pages on this artist because it has really been written now yeah. you know the Ber you know though I'm obsessed with David Bowie the Berlin years have been written about quite a lot and you can just yeah. kind of listen to the albums now so yeah I think it's kind of interesting about that time thing because I think the 80s, I mean, it's strange, it takes, I think, it's not 20 years, I think it's going to be 30 years, because the 80s, almost like with Cherry Red Records, have been putting out these compilations, and a few years mm. ago they did the C86 one, where they they took the 22 tracks and then added another 44 and two more CDs, so that's a triple pack, and then they did C87 and then C88 this year, I think, and they might even keep going. So I kind of can see yeah. that it's going to be 30 years where people think, okay, we'll sort of get a nice 60 CD compilation and a nice booklet, and we'll put all these bands together. And I think it, it's kind of, it's unfortunately, it's going to be 30 years, but you'll be right there when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I think in a way, the sound, you know, I think people, I don't know, it does take almost that long before people think, oh, actually, it's not a bad sound, actually, is it? But at the time, you know, John Peel played it and everyone thought it was just a horrible mm -hmm. noise and they couldn't play the instrument. And probably the same with like a lot of the shoegazing sort of like post-rock bands as well, like My Bloody Valentine. You know, people just do take a long time before they think, oh, well, actually, yeah. you make That's me realise sounds quite nice. Yeah, and, and, and to sort of put it in kind, because what will happen is bands will then sort of take from them and maybe become more successful. Like, you know, thinking about post-rock, Radiohead are a good example of that with like OK Computer, not OK Computer, um, Kid A and um, Amnesiac. And they took from a lot of warp, warp bands and they took from a lot of post-rock bands and they were phenomenally successful and fair play to them because they're great albums. But it's only sometimes when a more successful band will take on those aspects that then people will realise, oh, actually, there are bands that have been have been doing this. Yes, you know? and this is the source material. Which yeah, exactly. And that is the end part of that interview with Jeanette Leach because um, apparently Sunday lunch was just being prepared. Anyway, thank you for listening. Now, the book is titled Fearless, The Making of a Post-Rock. It came out on Jawbone or is out on Jawbone Books. Um, track it down. It might just change your life. A very densely well-researched -re book. And if you want to contact me at the show, you can. You can use Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. It's always nice. And also, all the shows have been podcasts, so you can listen to them on Mixcloud, Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. There you go. But anyway, we're going to leave you with another track. Um, 
just to keep the party rolling. This is going to be my bloody Valentine and Only Shallow. Have a great week. (laughs) 